There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Central banks are pushing up interest rates because prices are going up. There's too much demand for the goods and services that are available to buy. So they want to squash that demand right down. And they are worried that as prices rise, people will ask for more pay, which will push prices up even more and cause a wage spiral. But strangely, some central banks, like the US Federal Reserve, seem to think you can push rates up, stop inflation, and not push the economy into a recession. The so-called soft landing that they're aiming for, and the Fed is using the beverage curve as part of the reasoning for how they will do this. So is it possible, or is it just wishful thinking? That's this week on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. So there is still this belief, Steve, that the US and other places around the world can weather this supply-driven inflation that we are seeing right now without the economy <laughs> hitting a hard landing, that, that somehow central banks can navigate this way through. Sorry, 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 sorry. But how likely is that? Is it even possible? Like I just had to duck. There was a flying pig I had to get underneath. Yeah. <laughs> but they believe it. This is what they're putting out there, isn't it? And, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So part of the reasoning is uh, that they give in, in the US, they seem to be attaching quite a bit to what they call the, the, the beverage curve. And I know that uh, Jerome Powell has been paying a great deal of attention to what's called the JOLTS data, the job openings data. So they're looking at the number of uh, jobs that are around, of which there are many, sort of like two for every person who's unemployed, and saying, oh, look, you know, the, uh, the, there's all of this extra capacity in the jobs market. So we can see, so so long as we see, you know, we can see things change. We can see the job vacancy rate go down without the unemployment rate going down. Uh, and that's how we're going to see the labour market tightening without anyone feeling the consequences. That is the logic that they're putting out there. And they're using the beverage curve uh, as the as the mechanism, which looks at the relationship between unemployment and the job vacancy rate. So how many jobs there are theoretically per person. As I say, there's two jobs per person uh, per vacancy in the United States. Uh, so, uh, yeah. I mean, does any of that make sense? Or is it just applying a, you know, a mathematical equation just for the sake of creating a mathematical equation? No, oh, no, there's certainly a relationship between the vacancy rate and like and you know, the number of jobs on offer and the number of people who haven't got a job. Uh, and what economists often bring their arguments about unemployment down to is simply a mismatch of skills to available positions. So they say that you can have that situation where there's more than one job per person that's unemployed, uh, but there's still unemployment because the people looking for jobs as pastry chefs and the people you've got are metal mm. workers. Um, so they say that, that that's, that's one of their arguments, and they say it's just a case of the market slowly fine-tuning itself until such time as the, uh, uh, as the vacancies that are there are available to the people who uh, have the skills that are required for those vacancies. And then what you were left with is what they call frictional unemployment, where the unemployment rate is just people who've left a job uh, and haven't yet got an, another job, but uh, have not themselves uh, 
being unable to find a job through a lack of aggregate demand. That's the basic right. thinking. And within 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 its you know uh, within within normal circumstances, inverted commas type uh, situations, then it's it's a reasonable guide. But I wouldn't be using this as a guide to what's going to happen with policy. No, or and what's going to happen over the next few months with with inflation? Because this is not normally. What you see with a, a recession, for example, is it normally with a recession you see lots of uh, unemployed people and not many jobs, whereas this time we are the other way around, and yet there are still these these fears of recession. But yeah, a lot, a lot of this is. I mean, if you have you been to have you been to an aeroplane flight recently? Uh, um, no, I don't. I don't <laughs> recommend it because you spend you spend longer queuing to get into the airport than you spend flying. Mm. Uh, the reason being that the uh, the security apparatus around the globe, particularly you know, large airports like Schiphol Airport, which is the one that when I fly, I fly out of Schiphol from Amsterdam. And what I've heard from friends in Sydney Airport as well, including seeing some pretty classic photographs on Twitter, there's enormous queues to get in. And why are there queues? Because there aren't enough skilled personnel to operate the security cameras. And the reason there aren't enough people is partially the sackings that were done during COVID, but also people coming down with COVID now who are skilled operators on those machines, you cannot train somebody else up in the meantime. So the queues appear, occur. Now, that's a classic case of a skill mismatch. But what's actually causing the, the vacancy, you could actually probably see ads now for people to be rapidly trained up to use these machines. What's causing the mismatch is COVID. It's no. not, uh, anything, not anything to do with aggregate demand, insufficiency of aggregate demand, uh, causing unemployment and therefore, you know, high, rising unemployment and falling wages. Uh, it's a very, very different situation. And as usual, they're diving in with the tools that they know into a world they don't know. So you're saying that a big chunk of, because obviously in that, in that uh, airport situation, we are now seeing a massive peak in, uh, in, in, in airfares. So, for example, I'm traveling to, to Australia at the end of the year, and that if I, I bought the tickets in January, if I bought them now, they would be twice the price that I paid for in January mm. because the airfares have gone up that much, and domestic airfares are just crazy. And, and in Australia, I think particularly, someone was telling me this week they were trying to go from Melbourne to Sydney to Melbourne, and it was something like $800 uh, mm. for a one-way ticket. So maybe it was. Oh my God. The, maybe that was for two of them, but even so, it's still you know way higher than it should be. So is is a chunk of that because well, okay, okay, oil prices have gone up, but also staff costs have gone up because of this mismatch between skilled people uh, and uh, and the jobs that that are available. And if that was the case, then you'd assume that over time that will get better, won't it? That people will be skilled up into the right jobs, and that mismatch will start to correct itself and therefore if if wages are a, a part of this inflation then that will start to ease off and come down. Well, I think the other thing which can happen this is what actually I think will happen is that the vacancy rate will plunge uh, because now now we're seeing uh, the, the, the end of the big stimulus. The, the huge reason why we came through COVID uh, in terms of e- economically with, a, with the shortest, uh, very, very steep, but the shortest economic downturn in the history, I think, of American data. Uh, the reason was the gigantic stimulus was done. The, the fiscal, uh, I think the deficit in America reached 23% of GDP. Mm. That meant a 23% of GDP increase in people's bank accounts. And this is the, uh, the, this is the point which modern monetary theory uh, makes extremely well, and I can, I, can, I can establish the same thing using my Minsky software. The government deficit is dollar for dollar an increase in private sector 
bank accounts. Right. And, and therefore, with that much more money, uh, even though we had the, the, the stilted economy caused by COVID, uh, demand rose in all sorts of areas because you, if you, you couldn't fly for some time, so the money going into flying was going into domestic holidays, which meant you were buying domestic food, which meant you need more people working in restaurants, which you couldn't get because they had COVID, right. et cetera, et cetera. Um, but all those pressures, which we've still got COVID. I mean, I'm just... You just, I just, I've given up on any any potential for sensible policy at the national level anywhere, and that's that's what's actually happened. We've we've surrendered and called it victory. Uh, but I've never had it. Con- that's a thought. Neither of have I. Neither mm. have I. And that's because I wear a, a crazy mask, which is a, a personal HEPA filter. I ain't going to get the damn thing until as long as I can possibly delay it. But most of my friends now have had it. Mm. Uh, but the thing is, they're going to have it again and again and again. And this is the thing. You can actually catch it. You can get reinfected within within less than two months right. now, of I'm having not, a I'm, previous infection. Now, I'm not allowed to talk out against modern monetary theory. I don't want to either. But whenever I even give the slightest hint of a criticism, then an email <laughs> comes in from someone who uh, says, I'm not a believer and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm turning the middle line because I'm trying to keep my jobs elsewhere. It mm. might be partially true. But also, I'm just being devil's advocate on all of this. But isn't, isn't mm-hmm. this an example of uh, modern monetary theory and why it needs to be controlled. So you put a whole slug of money into into the economy, like we did. Uh, lots of money goes into people's bank accounts. They start demanding stuff. There's not enough stuff there to meet that demand. You get inflation. So the, it, well, that's, it, that's exactly what monetary theory admits. Is that yeah. If you have too much, you know, like I, I, it, it, my way of thinking about modern monetary theory is, first of all, it is not modern monetary theory. It's accounting. Yeah. When you do the accounting, you get the results that modern monetary theory says, and that's that's what's modern, it's not modern monetary theory; it's modern monetary fact. Yeah. But then the question is, what does that fact do when you create that much more money and inject it into the economy? Does it push up prices, uh, or does it expand demand? Now, um, that that again depends on how what your effective level of capacity utilization is in the economy itself it's the speed and, at which you do it isn't it you know and the speed at which this was very done very rapidly it had to be done rapidly if it hadn't yeah. been done rapidly society would have fallen apart there would have been no capacity for people to pay their mortgages to pay their rents there would have been bankruptcies the banks would have failed this is an absolutely essential time where we use the government's capacity to create money but that necessarily caused a spike in demand now the thing is i think that spike's going to disappear because because it's still not even the people who did this don't realize what they did i mean you see all this thing wow people have saved so much more money during covid how did that happen it's because you created 23 percent of gdp initial money you're moron yeah uh, that's why it happened but they're not realizing that then i was saying we've got to go back and balance the budget and you can see this not only in what's uh, actually biden's not so bad on that front i must say the americans aren't so bad but you can see that rhetoric in the in the uk you can see it in australia with jim chalmers the new treasurer saying he's got to repair the budget. Um, so we, what we're going to do is the government stop creating that much more money, uh, go from 23% down to, say, 3%, and then, of course, there'll be, in the, in, the tr- in the change from that level down, we're going to have a dramatic drop in demand. So I think that's the first thing which is coming through. So is that through taxation? How, how do you get that down? I mean, you've got to pull that money out. So do, what, through taxation? Well, or they, they cut back on, on various forms of spending. And when yeah. they cut back on spending, the people who suffer clearly are the rich. 
you know, because the rich need the rich need their Medicare cards, otherwise they can't afford to go to hospital, and they need they need their so that's a problem, their, isn't their, it? They need their train cut, trans- they can't afford. To- yeah, so how do you yeah. cut back on spending at, at a time like this without uh, impacting the people who who really need it? And uh, exactly, exactly, and that's what we're seeing. We're seeing the, the, the incredible increase in the cost of energy in Europe, in particular, yeah. meaning people are getting bills which are five times what they were last year, and therefore they simply can't afford to buy a whole range of other things. So we're getting a contraction in demand caused by that energy uh, surge in energy prices and drop in energy availability as well. And then on top of interest rates rises. So all these things, I think, are going to, first of all, you've got government stimulus being taken out of the economy, interest rates being driven up, which increases the cost of existing financing. But what I think is going to cause is, is a credit crunch mm. because people, the, the, they're seeing house prices falling globally now as well. So the, the fear of missing out is now the fear of going bankrupt. Um, and, and therefore, the, the credit-based demand, which is highly positive in the in the early initial period of of COVID, a dramatic increase in in borrowing, uh, which of course fed into the asset markets and accused those huge bubbles in house prices. If that goes into reverse, and we have negative credit. Then you've got the, the triple whammy: rising interest rates. Uh, which again, which makes servicing existing debt much harder and force people to cut back on normal consumption, meaning therefore recorded GDP falls that way. Falling real wages because inflation is running at uh, twice or three times the rate of wage changes, so people are forced to spend less because of that. Rising energy costs, so you've got less to spend on everything else. Uh, governments cutting back on deficits, and then you have people in this situation, the last thing you want to do is take on more debt, you're going to try to pay your debt off, which might involve selling assets, and you have asset price deflation coming out of that. So I, I think we're up for a, 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 a the, the, forget the beverage curve. We're going to we're going to trash that because vacancies are going to plunge, the unemployment is going to rise, yeah. and that will take us back to the situation where you know you've got uh, so vacancies are going to fall simply because the economy is is shrinking. So there's going to be less less yeah. jobs around. Yeah. So, you, you, okay. you will do yeah you will do okay, come employers even though they need staff won't be hiring them. And yeah. this is, uh, so the vacancy rate, you know, the, the ratio is going to plunge. Right. So you said that, uh, you know, real wages are going to fall. I mean, that, that that is a curious thing in itself, isn't it? Why would they? And it, it, it it's curious to me that there's not more strike action. Okay, in the UK, they're using it as an opportunity. There's quite a bit of strike action going on, but not a great deal in the US or in, in Australia. Mm. And yet you would have thought, you know, if you're uh, on a lower income and you see inflation spiking and you don't see your wages going up as much as that, then you would be saying, well, OK, we want some of that. We we, we want to demand, you know, if inflation is 11 percent, we want to get an 11 percent pay increase so that we you, so we can stand still so we can afford to maintain uh, our, our standard of living. Uh, and who's going to do the negotiation for you? Yeah, because there's no unions anymore. Absolutely. Effectively. Yeah. We've, we've, this, this, I mean, this is a, a neoclassical obsession that I've seen you know, over the 50 years that I've been involved in economics from being a student to being involved in the government as part of the Accord movement through to today. The perennial measure is how de- demonising unions got to eliminate them. When we eliminate things, the world will be so much better. Well, what we've done, you've eliminated them and you have no capacity now for workers to bargain in any sensible sense because are you going to go up to Jeff Bezos and demand a pay rise? Mm. <laughs> Okay, so it, 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 that's why you're seeing unionisation starting to rise again, because you know the, the work, working class needs a means of negotiating with the with the people in power, and uh, and we've eliminated that. So the only way we ever see wage rises are when you get an absolutely critical shortage of labour and employers put up wages to try to attract workers. Now we saw a bit of that uh, during COVID, and we saw. Um, 
you know, the, the competition over over wage rates in rehires. But then the danger is somebody, if you lose your job, you lose seniority. And if you lose seniority, you might be the first one sacked when things turn down. So all these things make people very, very reluctant to go and bargain. And what they do instead is they cut back on consumption, which, of course, accelerates the process. Yeah, I've always found, actually, a greater likelihood that I'll lose my job the more senior I get. It might be something to do with being promoted beyond your ability, perhaps, some people would say. Uh, (laughs) But uh, we're we're in a situation now, though, where we've we've got lots of people not working, uh, and, uh, you know, which is you'd see in a recession, but not because they've become unemployed, because, you know, as we say, there's so many jobs around. But I wonder how much of this is related, again, to that amount of money that's been put into the economy and uh, people not feeling the need to work right now. So the, 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 there's some standouts when you look at the JOLTS, JOLTS data. This is the job openings data in the United States. It measures jobs, hires, and uh, resignations or sackings, separations, as they, they call it. So you look at, for example, yeah. the education and health sector. And we know, you know, everywhere around the world that that's struggling because it's a it's a pretty crap job, a lot of it, isn't it? Not well paid and uh, dealing with a lot of aggro. Mm. It used to be a good job. It was a good job 40 years but, ago. Not probably anymore. not paying the, the money yeah. it needs. So 2.1 million mm. job openings in that sector in the United States, only 897,000 hires. This is in June and 811,000 separations. So actually, you're basically left with 2 million job openings. It's, it's not moving at all. I mean, could it be because paying conditions are crap? and nobody wants to work in them, and they've got, you know, alternative means for now. Uh, and, uh, you know, wouldn't logic therefore dictate, if you really wanted those people, you just have to pay more. And, uh, you know, with or without a union, you, if you've got 2.1 million job openings, and there's the, those people are around looking for work, you just need to entice them back in again. You just need to pay them more, don't you? I mean, there, there will be skills yeah. gaps, as a big chunk of this as well, of course. Well, you've got to, you know, how do you how do you get a new teacher? You train them train them for three years, mm. if you at a minimum before they're ready. Normally, it's four. Uh, you know, an undergraduate degree followed by a diploma of education. So once you've created these imbalances, it's incredibly hard to shift them right, again. But eight hundred eleven thousand left. You know, there's you yeah. know, there's the, you've got to find out why they're leaving. They've had they're, it. They've had you, it. I mean, like I yeah yeah like I mean, as speaking personally as an ex academic. I left in fairly dramatic circumstances from Kingston University, but I was delighted to leave because the the, the work pressures versus the pay were ridiculous. Mm. And I was the top paid person at the university as an academic, not as a, a bureaucrat. I'm sure there are vice chancellors and pro vice chancellors and deputy pro vice 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 for pro vice 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 chancellors earned more than I did. Um, but uh, it, it has become a battened down profession and people think that this is what I've got to do to make a living. I'd rather go and you know, serve at McDonald's. So what you get is the, the positions you need to provide the people who can make the machines that make the hamburgers at McDonald's decline. And you start getting a breakdown in the production system, which that's not the main factor that's happening right now. I think certainly it's COVID and the impact that has on, on globalised supply chains that's causing the trouble. Right. But, but COVID, over- COVID is not going to impact the number of people getting jobs. It might impact the number of hours worked, but you don't you don't not get mm. a job because of COVID unless you're you know uh, you're you've got a fear of walking outside your house. But uh, mm. but you wouldn't have thought it would affect the total number of jobs being taken. No, no, it's it's it's, it's affected the job. I mean, it's where a lot of the vacancies potentially coming from. But uh, 
it's you know we we have an incredible we've got a production system which is incredibly fragile this is the point which yeah. is not recognized by the people in authority they've benefited from 40 years of globalization in terms of reducing cost of production uh, you know, my classic example, I've always come back to this because I, you know, I learned about this face to face in China in 81, 82. Uh, American corporations agreed to sh- share half the ownership of the yeah. factories they established in the Sichuan free trade zone, as of the Shenzhen free trade zone, and I presume all the other free trade zones in China, give away half the profits and half the ownership of the firm. And now that, that, why did they do it? They were not out of the generosity of American capitalists. It's because they were saving so much more by paying lower wages that it was worth their while to do yeah. it. And, and so we've all become the, reliant on China as a result of that. And now we, we are, and, we, we, yeah. and the Chinese economy uh, is tanking, isn't it? That high growth that we saw. I mean, it's actually in con- contraction right now, you know, more than yeah. many other parts of the world because of their zero COVID approach. And, uh, you know, to, uh, even now, you know, the, the, many months into into this year, they, they're still seeing that, those numbers. So the PMIs, for example, uh, b- below 50, which means it's in contraction territory. So that's all a bit of a concern. But on the on the so, I mean, definitely, there's not the stuff coming into 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 factories in America uh, to the employed people can do whatever they do, add value or sell or whatever. Um, but there is a preoccupation, and you're right. You know, maybe that is the, the, the key factor. It's it's just supply-driven inflation that we're seeing right now. Yeah, but and, the, and, and that the, yeah, and that means that both you know, if if you costs are going up, uh, then the amount of the, the the sort of the margin above that, which can go into a sort of if you, what you might call discretionary wages, wages above your cost of subsistence and profits, decline. And either the working class or the capitalists have to cop it. Now, who are more, who's got more power in the world today? The capitalists. Mm. Uh, so their margin is unlikely to, their margins will come down. I think this is going to happen inevitably. Profit, profit will fall. Uh, but at the moment, it's real wages that are falling much faster. And there's no capacity for the workers to bargain their way up, even though you have this, you know, enormous vacancy rate and low unemployment rate. It simply isn't possible for them to bargain in that way. Right. So you're not you're not going to see a smooth adjustment at all. But that supply, you know, relates to goods more than services. So when you talk about you know having a queue at the airport, uh, I mean that is a service sector where the okay oil prices are factoring into it, but you're still there at the airport, so there's still demand for those services. It's that mm. there's not enough people. And that's where you get back to the, uh, you know, the question, well, why aren't there enough people? And is it because they're not getting paid enough? Why did we have this great, mm-hmm. this great resignation? Uh, and, you know, why the Fed is looking and going, well, OK, we need to look at that difference between the number of job openings and the number of people working. There's lots of jobs available. Maybe, mm-hmm. you know, if we ignore the mismatch, there's lots of jobs available. Uh, we just need to make sure more people are are working, and then some of those problems will will dissipate. So, getting back to, I mean, we, we won't stick on the beverage curve again. I promise you. Mm. But the Fed, <laughs> the Fed has been using it to determine, uh, you know, the move in the, un, the the unemployment rate. They say if the vacancy rate moves from about seven percent, which is where it is now, to four point six percent, which seems quite a big fall, and the reason for that is. Uh, no readily apparent reason, uh, then, the, then the unemployment rate would increase by only 1% or less. Um, so th- that is why they're saying, you know, we could have a soft landing because we could see that the vacancy rate 
uh, falls, the unemployment rate increases only a little bit, and that is enough to get rid of the of the of the um, the, the tightness in the labour market, which means they could uh, avoid recession. Now, the, in the logic steps there, there might be a few gaps. <laughs> I'm kind of trying to quite understand what they mean by that, but they—I mean—that that is their argument for a soft landing. There's a paper out which uh, uh, that looks at it. I have to say, Larry Summers, who might speak more sense than anyone in the Fed currently, has uh, said it's all baloney. Mm. But that's that's their reasoning. Yeah, well, it's—I mean, again, it's what they leave out that matters, and what they're leaving out is, mm. is first of all, the role of, of government in in um, in creating additional demand through running a deficit. Uh, and then they're yeah. leaving out the role of credit in creating additional demand, and that 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 is that is the problem that credit I think is going to plunge. We're starting to see the beginnings of it already in terms of uh, of loan approvals. In those what I've seen in Australian data recently, so the odds are that uh, we are going to see a sharp decline in credit on top of a cutback in government spending with an increase in debt servicing, and the, the three of them together, that you know. A, I'd be quite surprised if there isn't but a reserve. Yeah, we already had two quarters of negative. But that's all driven by the Fed. I mean, the, the reason why there's, you know, we, we're going to hit a credit crunch is because interest rates are going yeah, up so but, much, but, which but, is but, the Fed but, trying to counter inflation. Well, but, so what you're saying is the Fed is actually going to create it rather yeah, than this time round, yeah. it's sorting itself out. Yeah, this time around, the, the Fed is causing it. Uh, uh, and, and, and also the governments that are following the, you know, we must balance the budget nonsense, which includes the yeah. new Australian Labor government, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, that's the, it, this is going to be a government-caused recession. So like the one in 2008, which I was calling uh, from 2006 on, was, was caused by uh, a, a collapse in a credit bubble. And a credit bubble was being, you know, egged on by governments with believing that rising house prices were, a, you know, a good thing. And then they were... You know, agreeing with all the deregulation the finance sector wanted to cause, which, by the way, Larry Summers played a large role in uh, uh, enabling in America. Um, so I'm not going to regard him as a hero right now. Uh, but mm. but that that uh, was a credit. There was a, a market-driven credit crunch. The housing bubble collapsed. Credit demand went from 15% of GDP in 2006 to minus five, minus 5% in 2009. And that was entirely driven by the end of a private uh, private debt credit bubble. This time round, it'll be the government putting up uh, interest rates because that's the only, it's the old classic hammer and nail. You know, the only, when, you, when your mind only gives you a hammer and their mind is seldom that you can control the int- inflation rate using the interest rate. This is what they call the Taylor, the Taylor curve, another, another crazy curve from yeah. neoclassical theory. Uh, you're going to hit it. And the thing is, you can't cause the cost of supply to fall by putting up interest rates. And to make it worse, of course, <clears throat> you know, if, uh, if, if interest rates are going up, sorry, if inflation is going up and you're not seeing wages going up, then obviously that is decreasing the amount of money that people have available to be able to buy stuff. So that subdues demand, which the Fed would say, well, that's, a, that's good because that's exactly what we're trying to do. Uh, and then there's this big fear of, of spiralling inflation through through wages as well, which is presumably why governments are trying to subdue wages in the public sector because they're worried about that spiralling inflation. So they're actually adding to that discrepancy that the Fed is looking at between, you know, and they're part of the government, really, uh, that, that discrepancy between yeah. openings and employment. So they've got one million job openings in the government, 360,000 people leaving and only 413,000 people on board. So actually, we're not seeing any improvement in the number of job openings. So if they were smarter, perhaps, maybe they'd say, well, actually, maybe we should put up public sector wages, uh, spend a bit more. We can, you know, thanks to modern monetary theory, we can spend that money. 
uh, let's pay a bit more to get more people working in the, in the public sector so that we reduce that number of uh, of job openings so we've got more money in the economy flowing through and people buying stuff so we increase demand so long as you know we we're, we're not hitting that supply constraint but let's try and encourage them to spend money on on services and get more people working back in the service sector yeah, this has an aggregate demand approach rather than a, a microeconomic approach, which is the way that many you know, classical economists inevitably think in a microeconomic mm. sense. And that's why they've, for example, been against minimum wages and stuff like that. But if you don't have minimum wages and you have this increase in, in prices uh, and, and, and wages falling below subsistence, which is starting to happen, uh, in, in, I think in England that's quite likely, uh, then you're going to get social breakdown coming out of that. Why bother going to work if you can't, you know, uh, if it's going to cost, if the costs are so enormous and the returns are so poor, then people are thinking, why should I travel a large distance for a job? I'm going to work where I can. Can I afford to work in London? The answer is no. So vacancies in London go unfulfilled. Yeah. You'd be pleased to know, by the way, I know lots of people where I'm in Farnham an hour out and uh, 35 or 40 pounds per day to get into London by train. Uh, and season tickets that might reduce that a little bit, but no great, you know, by no great amount. It's an exp- it's a huge expense trying to get into into London. It's also, you know, by the time you've arrived at your destination, an hour and a half each way, so th- three hours of commuting. It would be no surprise to you that you know lots of the people I know here who were doing that every single day are refusing to do it now, and their companies are saying, no, 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 we want you to come back. You know, a number of times I've sat and had a coffee with people uh, who, who've said that, you know, the employer said, well, you've got to come back because, you know, there's lots of other people who could do this job. And their, their response has been, well, OK, I, well, good luck finding them because uh, I'm not going to do it. And they're still working, you know. So actually, even without a union, I mean, these they're, they're yeah. middle ranking and senior jobs. They have, you know, held to, the, uh, to their own and they're working from home. They might go in once, a, once every couple of weeks. Perhaps, uh, so you know that's that's changed forever. So uh, you know, just as an aside, it, it's interesting how the, the, the all of these dynamics are changing uh, right now, isn't it? Mm. But look, the in the US, let me give you another number. Yeah, uh, there were ninety eight point eight million people not in the labor force. This is in June, and only six point one million of those actually want a job right now. So only six percent of those who are not in the labor force want to work. If you go back ten years. The same month in 2012, 86.7 million were out of the labor force. 6.8 million wanted to work. So that's 8%. So, I mean, I guess there's factors in this. Some of it will be people have worked through, uh, you know, been through COVID and reassessed their life. And uh, and then and also perhaps looking at, you know, the, the relative value of their wages having come down. And also people are older and they've got more savings, as we've, we've been talking about. It's going to be hard to change their minds. However many jobs you you stick in the newspaper, so I'm wondering, you know, whether there is much of a relationship actually between the number of jobs that are being advertised and uh, and and the unemployment rate. Not as much as it used to be when we had a, a you know a, a much better pay when, when we had a tight uh, labour when there were fewer yeah. jobs around. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and that all the thinking that goes into uh, economic theory has been built on the on predicated on the belief that you the economy tends towards a tight labor market that you get full employment uh, automatically so that the fact that you have all these disconnects in the production system uh, uh, discourage workers as well i mean that's uh, that, that proportion of people who actually want a job it's I mean, partially people out of the workforce are zero to fifteen and sixty four plus but uh 
there's still a substantial proportion in the 15 to 64s who, if they can get out of the workforce, you know, and survive in whatever manner they, they can, given how unattractive it is to be a worker these days, that's what they're doing. So it, it is, in some ways, this is the mentality of ne- what neoliberalism inspires in its victims uh, of, of, you know, if you can avoid working and survive without it, damn well do it because the extra gain you get out of, out of working, out of what you've got left out of your own uh, uh, you know, savings and uh, mm. uh, pension supports and so on uh, is just not worth the effort. Right, except for those, of course, who are on a low income and they have to, and will have to do even more, take yeah. second jobs or whatever to uh, to cope with the increased cost of living that they're going to face with mm. their, with increased fuel bills and the, and the like. So, so this preoccupation. Just finally, then let's 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 round off the 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 Fed's preoccupation with the tightness of the labour market as the as, as one of the key factors for driving inflation. Is that just baloney? It's, it's got it's got a certain amount of, of, of logic to it. I'm looking at that uh, Fed paper you talked about uh, right now. Um, but <laughs> uh, the neoclassical idea that you can substitute something for something else and therefore solve your problems turns up yet again. Equation three in that, uh, in that, in that model has a, a Cobb-Douglas production function where you have uh, parameters uh, that do job matching, how matching efficiency uh, uh, being, the, the, being the exponents in this equation. And that implies mm. it's very easy to swap from being you know, poorly matched to, to well matched for a, for a, for a job. Uh, it's easy to substitute one thing for another. It's not. And we're, we're now, we're, with all the stuff we're bumping into now, uh, the, the fact that you can't get through, you take, you've got to queue for five hours to get into an airport because there aren't workers who can operate the machines. Uh, it, it's not a Cobb-Douglas production function to train somebody up to operate those right, scanners. But that's their argument, isn't it? Uh, that, that we, can get, we, can yeah. get the, the, uh, we can get the job vacancies down if we have an improvement in how we mm. match those jobs to, to people. That was, that, that was the argument. Yeah, yeah. And pretty much the, 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 the matching function is all that matters. And, it, you know, the real world is a lot more complicated than a neoclassical model. Mm. Uh, and the trouble is that's what's guiding how the Fed is right. thinking. I mean, put, put simply, what, I mean, that is, that is yeah, saying, hey, look, yeah. there's, uh, there's a lot of people not working right now and there's lots of job vacancies out there. The fact that they're not working uh, means that uh, prices are, are going up because we don't have enough people producing stuff or, or supporting the service sector. If we can just get those people into jobs, then everything will be fine. Uh, the only problem is we've got the wrong people, so we just need to train those people up to be uh, brain surgeons or airline <laughs> pilots or whatever it is that we're short of. That's, I mean, that's the logic, isn't it? Unfortunately, and that's why it's not working. That's why, you know, the, the, the economy, it, it is... It is, it is the, the economists have this myth, myth of believing that efficiency means flexibility, but efficiency often means you're so well suited to a particular role that you cannot be, uh, you cannot uh, undertake another one. Uh, my favourite example of specialisation is actually the Australian koala. I think there's 130 or so different varieties of eucalyptus trees. These, the, those, those, they eat about less than 20 of them. Uh, they're perfectly adapted. Nobody else can eat eucalyptus leaves and survive, but they can. But if those 20 species go, that's the end of your koalas. Now, a similar sort of thing here, the, the level of, of, of fine-tuning and efficiency that the, has been forced on the economy by the neoclassical obsession with efficiency has meant the economy is not robust. Mm. And now we're experiencing that when you, get, when you get a serious disturbance like COVID, monkeypox is well on top of that. Uh, 
and, and, and energy constraints we're striking, which are now becoming as critical as they were predicted to be in the limits to growth. Put that all together and you have a system which is sclerotic. It does not have the flexibility uh, characteristics that neoclassical models have and therefore having people try to guide the economy using these tools which assume infinite flexibility uh, in a world where it's incredibly uh, clunky uh, and fragile, it ain't going to yeah, work. And stuff takes time. That you know, you can't suddenly retrain yeah. overnight. Thing, amazingly, that that's that. I actually had that, you know my door at one stage. I, I was a little saying things take time, <laughs> and and the basic you know TTT. And the reason is that now I just got used to neoclassicals assuming an instant adjustment. The market will instantly adjust to this change. Bullshit. Yeah. It takes time, and it takes and, and the the more fine tuned your economy is, the harder it is for that time to occur. And so we're seeing all those mismatches hitting Well, up Oliver now. Blanchard and Larry Summers, uh, in their dissection of that beverage curve paper, say that vacancies won't go down without a major increase in unemployment. That's that's how they're seeing it. So they're, they're talking hard landing rather than soft landing. By the way... Uh, and for once, I agree yeah, with them. Yeah, mm. well, so, okay, well, one out of 10 for Larry Summers. Um, we'll forget all the, <laughs> the, the nine that went before. So, by the way, I'm thinking we should do a bit of uh, Steve Keen bingo on this. Uh, you know, what is the most <laughs> the most unlikely word to be used in this podcast? Now, obviously, people will go, oh, he's going to mention the spinning Jenny again. Uh, so we won't <laughs> put that as, but uh, koala. When we started this, I, I didn't think, I, did, I had no idea we'd be talking about koala bears. So, there you uh, go. There we go. All right, look, next week, I want to talk about the price mechanism uh, and uh, and whether it can actually, you know, how big a part can it play in fixing inflation in the, in the longer term, but also the uh, the European energy crisis. And the reason is because next week on, on another podcast I'm doing, uh, we've got a guy who's saying, well, yes, that the price mechanism will actually go a long way to fixing the problems that we've got. And I suspect you're not going to entirely agree with him, but maybe we'll find some middle ground. Uh, that's next week on the podcast. Good to talk, Steve. Okay, mate. Good. Yep. And there we go. As far as podcasts go, uh, that was another one. And there'll be yet another one again next week. Uh, same place uh, with me and Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Join me for that. Have a great week. In the meantime, we'll see you then. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.